Hello from Temple Bar in Dublin. Very welcome to season two of our Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company and Falcha Ireland. That opening track was from the Friel Sisters, recorded at Tradfest back in 2019. Now, over the past few months, we've been speaking to music festivals and musicians from across the globe about their experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic today. We're thrilled and we're excited to be speaking to the legendary American folk singer-songwriter Jim Page. Jim, it's both an honour and a pleasure to chat to you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Now, the last time 
that we spoke to you was at Tradfest in 2019. That's the last time you were in Dublin, as far as I can remember. Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't your first time in Ireland, though. No, no, it wasn't. My first time was uh, 1979 at the legendary, fabulous Ballasad Air Festival. And uh, it was a, a daunting lineup, to say the least, you know. Um, were you guys there? You were there, weren't you? We were there. 79? Yeah, but sure. When you said it was a daunting lineup, I thought you meant that we were there. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't overstepping my bounds. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it was it was it was ridiculous. I mean, I'm this, you know, I'm this 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 middle class white guy from from San Jose that you know, California, who plays the guitar and stuff, and you know, and, I, and I'm going there, and here's all these like real musicians, and I was I was just oh, I was. Uh, you know, I was I was stunned to be in the presence of you know the likes of yourself, of Tommy Hayes, for God's sake. You know, Paul Brady was there, Clannad was there. It was stupendous. But that was my first. That was my first introduction to the music scene. And Christy Moore was there with Planksty and the Bothy band were there, and it was you know, it was amazing. It was it was really something. So I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the music and the scene and the power of it and the. I don't know, the intentionality of the music, how it could be intentional and whimsical at the same time, you know, was and is mind boggling. So, well, know. I think actually the audience fell in love with you as well. How did you feel? Because you were bringing something completely new to an Irish audience. How did you feel they, they took to you? Uh, surprisingly well. Um, I, I only had two sets and each set, if I remember correctly, was half an hour long which fortunately is not so long that if you start drowning, <laughs> it'll be terminal, but it's also not long enough to really, you know, get something going unless you're smart about it. And, and um, I had this song called Hiroshima Nagasaki Russian Roulette, which I'd been singing in America and different places. And it was about, well, obviously what it was about. And uh, somebody told me that there was this, you know, uh, anti-nuclear scene in Ireland that was, that had a really good head of steam and a whole bunch of really good people involved and they were making progress. And, you know, and I thought, okay, so I'm, I'm gonna sing the song. And I, I, had, I had one set on Saturday and one on Sunday. And the Saturday set I figured would just be to test the waters to see if anybody actually liked what I did to begin with, period, you know. Um, or if it was a lost cause, you know. And uh, so I would just, I just did like a handful of different kinds of songs and it seemed to go down well enough so i thought okay so then the next day i thought what i would do is i would do the best that i possibly could and if i could pull this off if i could really pull it off i need an encore i wanted to get an encore if i got an encore then i would do he regime and nagasaki russian roulette as the encore song you know and it was it was it was a daring thing to do because if I hadn't gotten an encore, I never would have sung the song. You know, it was kind of kind of a stupid thing to do, but it, it worked. I, it worked actually. I don't remember what the other songs were, but it worked. And so then I did you know that song, and I got a second encore. And so I thought, okay, I've got to get off the stage because I'm taking up extra people's time. So I, I, I did a slow thing. You know, I remember it was raining on the tent. I could feel it, and it was just, it was one of those. It was a really beautiful moment. It was like, you know, cause I, I don't, I don't, I don't know the culture. I don't know the people. I'm, I'm here, but people were. I, I remember being really nervous backstage before I went on, 
you know, because this was the one that had to matter. And I, I was really nervous and I needed something to, you know, I really wanted a drink that was in those days when I was doing that. I really want, but it was Sunday. <laughs> and so there wasn't any. And fortunately, one of the people involved in the, in the stage management had a little bottle of, you know, airplane bottle, airplane bottle size of John Powers whiskey, you know, just a little thing and said, here, take this. So I, I, I downed that and got on, on stage and I did my set and, you know, everything worked. It was, it was fabulous. And I just, I was, I was quite stunned by the response. I remember a couple of boy, anyway, I came back, uh, I, I got a transatlantic phone call from Planksty's manager later on in like October asking me if I want, want to come over the next month and do a tour with them. You know, it's like, I had three weeks notice or something. I said, yeah, so dropped everything and, you know, went on over and somewhere in there, somewhere in that little thing, um, I did a gig at the meeting place, you know, and Hot Press had done a national readers poll for the, you know, various categories. And one of them was the best international folk and traditional singer. And I came in first, I got first place. And second place was like uh, Ry Cooter and third place was Bob Dylan, you know, and I go, I thought, oh my God. And the line went around the block for this little gig up at the meeting place, you know, and I had to do some serious uh, restructuring of my, <laughs> it, 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 it knocked me over. It knocked me over a bit, it really did. Well, of course, at that time, the meeting place in Dorset Street in Dublin was the folk club to play in. We played there on Monday nights, Christy played there on other nights, Freddie White, other nights. So it was a great gig to be part of, and there was a certain amount of energy around that particular venue. Small venue on Dorset Street in Dublin, but a very powerful venue to be playing at. So it was a fantastic uh, idea that you should arrive there. But how can you explain? I'm surprised that you should say you felt a little nervous then did you need a little sort of pick me up before that gig in Ballester there is that your norm or is was that just the day no there isn't any norm I mean every, every place is everything is is different it's just that the musicianship mm-hmm. was I mean to my ears I'd never been surrounded by so much um world-class music all in the same place at the same time I mean you know I mean I doing what I do I've, I come from a different different thing it it knocked me it I mean, there were players that really knocked me out. And I thought, oh, my God. It's like I had to go on like after Paul Brady or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Or maybe it wasn't after him, but I'd seen him already. It, it was daunting. It was it was daunting. But it worked out. Everything it worked out. It yeah. did work out. So yeah, let's okay. get a, a little bit of your background, Jim. When I met you in January, actually, we were having a bit of a chat. Uh, yeah. And you took out the guitar and sat mm-hmm. down and actually did a... A song intro <laughs> as you were looking at me there. Where does that skill come from? Oh, I don't know. It's I, I just this I discovered I could do that by accident when one time I was like, what was I, 17 years old? 17, 18, I can't remember. I've been taking guitar lessons from a guy named Al Bilehars. He played finger picking, you know, and I don't I don't I barely do any finger picking anymore. I've lost interest in it. But regardless, um he and I were sitting outside. And we were trading songs, just sitting outside in a little town called Saratoga in California in the summertime, you know, and uh, it was kind of stiff, you know, uh, the whole scene, I felt kind of stiff. And I, I just kind of, I just started playing 
chords, like the one, four, five chord, you know, like a C, F, G, or whatever, you know, whatever you have, one, four, five, just kind of re real simple. And I just talked over it. And I didn't think about what I was saying, and I didn't stop myself. I just talked over it, and everything fell into place. And it didn't just fall into place, but it liberated me. I felt like I had lifted out of my body, almost like on a pocket of air or something. It's like, oh my God, I don't have to be in a box. You know, it was a feeling like that. It's like, I don't have to be in a box. And then I would kind of find myself doing it from time to time. And then somebody challenged me in New York to do it, you know, and I did it a little bit. You know, the problem is, is, is if you get self-conscious, you know, you start thinking, well, I have to say something smart. <laughs> You're going to lose it. I mean, that, you know, that my, my, my rule over the years that I've developed and stuff like that, because it's an improv, you know, it's an improv, is to not think on stage. You think off stage. You think before, you think after, you think about stuff all day long, you catalog things in your mind. And then when you go on stage and you do the one, four, five chord thing and you start, you know, hip hopping over it, rapping over it, improving over it, whatever you want to call it, freestyle, you don't think. You follow yourself, but you don't really think. You stay away from certain things, you know, because you don't want to get arrested. But, you know, when I was in New York, um, I set myself up outside the kettle of fish, which was a legendary bar next to the gaslight which was a legendary folk club i used to play in and outside the kettle of fish there was like a, a loading a loading thing that they open up out of the sidewalk and their stairs go down but the the thing that they open up is all metal right and um, i had a milk crate that i'd gotten from somewhere and i turned it upside down i put it on top of that metal thing and i sat there and this was like summertime like on a friday night saturday night so it was just jammed with people man it was like wall-to-wall -wall people you know and i'm sitting there and i didn't have any songs that that i could sing outdoors they were all like indoor songs you know you know i was like 19 years old or something i'd barely been off out of my neighborhood you know and here i was so what am i what do i do so i just started doing chords and it was like uh it was just two chords it was a one and a five just two chords kind of a funk sort of a thing in my way and i started wrapping off of people's shoes their purses their pants the color of the shoes color of the purse color of the pants if a dog went by put the dog in there and i would instantly get a mob i mean all you had to do was stop and pick up a, a piece of chewing gum and you'd stop and create a mob because there's so because there were so many people so i'm not saying i was any good but i get a big it would stop everybody would stop right and get this crowd around and then I realized I didn't have any songs that, that I could do, you know, so then I would stop and then they would move on their way and I would do it again. So I realized I could do this thing. What happened in Ireland from from doing it there and doing it in other places was was I got this this reputation for it. And I was even called in certain certain newspaper presses. Um, I was referred to even on posters, I think, as the king of the talking blues which kind of puts a damper on it in a way because it's something for me anyway it's something you want to do when it's when it presents itself mm -hmm. you know it's like a, it's it it is an improvisational thing it's not something that you do by rote you don't make up a set list and like okay number four i'm going to do an improv 
you don't do i don't do that you just go sing along and then when it when it strikes you when for some for some reason you feel like you need to or you want to then you go there you know and you see where it leads you can't you dance with it it's an improv so you that's wait, a really long you, you kind of wait for it to come to you but if you're going on stage surely like you'd have a certain number of songs that you're going to do do you just wait to see how how the audience is or who's in your audience or you know um you know what that'll give you some inspiration for for that sort of rhyming well yeah but also i mean i don't want to make it i don't want to make it be too intentional it starts to get yeah. wooden yeah. you know what i'm saying it gets wooden it's got to it's got to be whimsy it's, it's a whimsy thing and you can't force whimsy then you kill it so i got the songs i'm going to do i always know the the first song i'm going to play often i'll know the first two and that's about it and then i'll have in my head i'll have certain songs that i want to do because i've wanted to do them because they'll fit the situation whatever i don't know if i'm doing if i've only got four songs then yeah i'll figure them all out but if i'm doing like a set somewhere if it's just me you know and i'm doing a set a solo set i'll know what i start with and that's it and then i'll feed off of that and you know i'll see i feel how the audience is going and then songs will pop into my head as i as i go along and if if i feel like i need to unravel a stiffness if i want to talk about what happened on the way to the gig or the weather outside or what the president is up to or something like that whatever it is then i'll do that but i i, I don't i don't want to kill the whimsy of it because it's it's like a conversational thing that you do am i making sense at all you are, and I'm listening to you because uh, you just, uh, I didn't know, I, I'm going to go there now since you mentioned the okay. president and the nothing whimsical oh. about that. And you have a conscience about uh, the political awareness and all of that. Was that always yeah. part of you anyway? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I grew up in the 60s, you know. I mean, um, I'll be 71 years old next month. I graduated from high school in 1967 in california i grew up in the lower bay area and what that means is that it means that by the time i got out of high school i had a pretty good idea of what the vietnam war was all about and i wasn't going to go there okay but i had a number and everybody had numbers and you know it was something that was breathing down the back of your neck you know every every young person graduating from high school had had that thing breathing down the back of their necks and if you didn't have any 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 access to information, I mean, the Bay Area was a pretty forward-thinking place, you know. And and if if you were living somewhere else, a lot of people didn't have any access, and they didn't find out until it was too late that what they were doing was not within anybody's best interest, let alone their own. So you know, um, coming, you know, you know the story. So anyway, um, in the clubs, when I played, where I grew up. I mean, the whole scene, I, the whole scene, every place I played, everybody sang, I don't know, at least five songs, probably five that had to do with the war, civil rights, uh, the trouble in life, everybody. And if you didn't, you were really square and people like looked at them, like, who is that? You know, they're not real. There was an unreality to it if you didn't. Everybody did that. And if you listen to records from those days, everybody sang it, even the rock and roll bands, you know. Listen to Jefferson Airplane. You know, what are they singing about? They're singing about that stuff. Grateful Dead were singing about that stuff. Everybody was. Joan Baez was singing about it. Dave Van Ronk, everybody was singing about it. And 
there are very few people that only did that. You know, Phil Oaks was like the guy that only did that. You know, he didn't only, but pretty much only, like 95% of his stuff was political. You know, most people had a holistic way, and that's what I grew up in. And that's what made sense to me, because we live in a world which is made of romance, whimsy, sports, politics, music, all those things. And the politics is in there. And it does affect you and people do talk about it and we have a right to sing about it, a right to talk about it, a right to think about it. And songs can be anything. And so they, nobody should ever be allowed to tell you what a song cannot be or what a song should be. I'm listening to what you're saying and about that era, but are today's, let's say, modern or more modern artists, those who are emerging onto the scene, have they the same consciousness as you had? I don't know, and I don't know whether that would make sense if they did, because it's different times. I do know, though, and I think I'm right. You know, I, I, when we get older, we we tend to get kind of a distant view of things in one sense, and we kind of tend to almost get like a superiority thing that happens a lot, like in my day when I was your age, that kind of nonsense. Um, this is what I think, since you asked. This is what I think. I think the idea of the political song has gone diffuse. It's not disappeared. It's not been belittled. It's gone diffuse. Okay. Look at some of the stuff that Michael Jackson did. I mean, he had, and he made videos of it. And there were riots in the videos. And there were like serious stuff in those videos. You know, Prince, you know, everybody. It's in, it's become a legitimate part of what we do. So that you too can go out there. And even if they might not, use any particular words the whole vibe has this thing that it does that makes you feel like yeah we can do something or whoever it is stockton's wing whoever it is everybody does something you know mm -hmm. and i don't know if that comes from the 60s or whether that was there before the 60s came along because you know remember a lot of stuff was being invented like I don't, I don't really think there was a folk music section in the record stores before. I think they were just in amongst everything else. Um, I think I remember being, being around. I think I remember the first time I heard the term superstar. Was well, it might have been John Lennon that they were talking? But that was like invented. These things were invented, and now we think we we just kind of accept them as being I don't know natural or normal or something. They were invented. They're part of the whole celebrity system, how they manufacture people, manufacture bands and manufacture, you know, um, manufacture our likes and dislikes, you know, and it's for the purposes of record sales. I mean, come on, you know, it's, it's fairly, business, baby. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's fairly <laughs> easy to see I through. Mean, you're a bit of a superstar yourself, though, because you created something very special after you moved to Seattle because you caused the city kind of governance to change their outlook on people busking in that. And that was, that's, oh, yeah, that's, right, uh, that's right. something that you achieved. That, uh, do you think about that much? Uh, not a lot, but I, but it's, I did that in 1974. Hmm. Okay. Because, well, I don't know, 74, I was 24 years old, man. It was like, I was, you know, I was threatened with arrest for singing on the street. Yeah. Threatened with arrest for singing on the street with an acoustic guitar. You know, I mean, I would, there are many other things, it seems to me, to arrest somebody for, and that's not one of them. And I was told that I was, I, that I, uh, 
I had to have a permit. And I said, well, I'll get a permit. He said, you can't get one because you're not blind. And he drove off. He was a motorcycle cop. So I went down to City Hall and I asked, and they said, yes, that's true. You have to have a permit. And they only have them for so-called blind and disabled people. Okay, so I, I walked off and I was all, you know, pissed off and discouraged. And what do I do? God damn it. I was, you know, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, that'll be kind of interesting. Let's see what I can do if I just kind of go in and start talking to people. So I went into the mayor's office. I mean, why start small, right? I go into the mayor's office and the mayor's secretary laughed and said, you don't want to come in here. You want to go across the hall and we'll send you over. We talked to Randy Ravel. He was the head of, he was a city council person and he was the head of, um, uh, public safety division, <laughs> public safety, acoustic guitars, songs on the sidewalk and public safety don't go together in my mind. But what do I know? I'm not on the other end. Maybe they're dangerous from a distance. But I went and talked to him. He was really nice. You know, he took me under his wing. You know, we had a good, good conversation about it. And he went to work and he got me a couple of special permits so I could play in a couple of parks, including the zoo, you know. And I would never play in the zoo, but he was working with me. So I figured I'd work with him. So I went and played in the zoo and he did his stuff. And I, I got my allies in the newspapers and I got him on the, on the TV and I got him on the radio and they wrote articles and I, I got this little kind of role going. And then we had a city council hearing and I made flyers and I put them up on telephone poles and in the windows, Jim Page live at city council, you know, Tuesday, uh, 2.30 in the afternoon, come one, come all. You know, something like that, put them around town. And all these people went down to city council. And it was a lot of fun, man. And it's like, you know, because if you look at it, the way I looked at it is you have got to be kidding to be to put this, what I do, in a box of seriousness and make it and and put it in like a lead suit with weapons. Mm -hmm. I'm playing the goddamn guitar. Okay, I'm playing the guitar and I'm singing songs and I'm making people laugh and I'm making myself laugh. And I'm being a clown in public because a real clown has something serious to say. Otherwise, it's not a clown, it's a fool. Okay, so I was I was making a I was I was doing all these things. I was doing the improv on the streets. I was for hours I would do that. You know, and I, I would break down my own barriers and everybody else's if I could, as much as I could. And I thought that you that somebody would turn that into a serious danger thing and say, you can't do it. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. This is insane. So we'll have this meeting. And I, I, I wrote a song about it and Kirani also. It was Watergate. Okay. And Watergate was secrets. And secrets is what you don't talk about. And singing is talking. And my ballad tradition, which goes back to before Woody Guthrie, but definitely is Woody Guthrie. That's public talking through song, right? That's how you talk in public through song. So I wrote a song called Now's the Time for Talking. And it wasn't very good. <laughs> I think I maybe only, maybe only sang it like twice or something or three times or something. But I sang it for, it was written for the city council. And I sang it there, you know, and there was a bunch of people and there was only one, only one entity in Seattle that was opposed to it. And that was the musician union. Now they've changed since then, but their reasoning was that allowing buskers to sing on the street would take money from the pockets of symphony players. Now that's a bit of a stretch, but a challenge. regardless, every all the city council people voted for it. It was a done deal. It was easy. It was put into the city code. 
yeah, city code, which means it's part of how Seattle defines itself. You know, it is now legal. It's been some old thing that was on the books for a long time. You couldn't do it. Who knows? But it was overturned. It was made legal. It opened up. And now it's like Seattle is like known. And it's got, a, it, I mean, not with the virus and everything right now, but ordinarily in the summertime, there would be everything from acapella groups doing gospel to hula hoop magicians and you know sleight of hand people and ballerinas and just everything all over town and it's amazing and nobody gets hurt nobody gets threatened it's become a part of our lives and it's i mean if you think about it to put the serious note in there because i knew you were going to ask the serious note in there when the time comes that you need to be able to tell the story and the system is broken down with the medias you need to be able to go out and sing it okay mm -hmm. so that's very important so we can do that we can go out and we can sing the story that's quite a so, yeah, that from, from you to the city of seattle yeah you know Everybody's got to do something, man. And, and it was, it kind of, the opportunity fell on my lap, you know. Well, fair play. Really I know cool. a man, actually, to take the opportunity. I'm enjoying the chat with you, and I'm interested to know what you feel about how politics are in the States at the moment. But I want to ask you, because you mentioned yeah. Balasadere there, and oh, yeah. one man that I remember was in Balasadere was Michal O'Donnell. You actually worked with him on an album I years did. later. I did. I did. How was that? I did. I got to know him quite well. It was an album called Visions in My View. And it was recorded in Portland, Oregon, at a little studio. Um, I forget what he called it at the time, but the engineer was Billy Oske, who is also a, a violin player and uh, a record producer. And uh, he and Michal had put this little duet together. They called it Night Noise. And Michal came to see me at a gig. And we had breakfast the next morning. And he said he would, God, I can't remember whether he said he would like to produce me or I asked him if he would be interested. I cannot remember that. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but we agreed to do this. And uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, he's, he was an incredible musical head, you know, and I, he knew places to take it that I didn't even know existed. It was really a trip. You know, we did it in two sessions, two set, two sections. Uh, a beautiful man too, and so softly yeah. spoken, beautiful singer, and that's you know from yeah. the depth of the tradition where he comes from. Yeah. I would have thought it was a lovely mixture for you to be working with him. Actually, it's been a long time since I heard any of yeah. that or any of Night Noise either that you mentioned <laughs> there, because uh, Tommy Hills played with them for quite a bit a while when he was there. He did. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a trio with Tommy Hayes. Did you? Did say, <laughs> say hi to Tommy. I think we talked about this a little bit when I was there last time. Because Tommy was there, mm -hmm. he and myself, and a guy named Orville Johnson, who is an old friend of mine. I've known him since. Oh boy, I don't know when I've known him since, but I've been playing with him basically since like '84. Um, and Orville, Orville is a a stupendous musician. I mean, he's really, really, really good. Plays anything, plays anything. Although his main instruments are guitar electric acoustic you know any any kind and dobro and he's a singer and he's an amazing player so he and i played for a long time and tommy was around he was. and i i asked him one time to come up 
because Tommy was living in Portland, and they asked him to come up to Seattle. You know, do something about him on over to Orville's, and the three of us sat around. It was a trip, man. It was great, because Tommy had all these little hand drums and stuff, you know, and, and Orville had his dobros and guitars and stuff. And they were, you you've got these like completely different cultural backgrounds meshing. It was a trip. I've got some tapes around somewhere. I mean, it was just wonderful. So we played, I don't know, two dozen gigs or something like that. You know. You mentioned there, fun. Jim, uh, about, you know, things at the moment in Seattle with COVID-19. How have you been coping with that? Coping with COVID? Well, it was... I've rearranged the way that I, I work. I spend a lot more time in my own little studio, which really isn't a studio. It's kind of a, I've got a laptop and I've got a recording program on it called Audacity. And then I've got a couple of microphones and and stuff and I'm learning how to use them. And I play around with that and I, and I do live streams and uh, doing the live streams has saved my sanity. It was real dark to begin with. Mm -hmm. It seemed like, I mean, our governor, governor of, of, of Washington State, when he first started talking about it, having these press conferences saying he was real serious and he cut right through all the BS and he just he just laid it right out there. and says, this is going to bother a lot of people. This is going. See, we've had this story going around for years about how there's going to be a point a, a nine point zero earthquake. It's the big one that's going to come. It's going to come. The only question is when. So he gets up there and he says, you know that earthquake they talk about? This is like that, only it's going to be really slow. <laughs> but I thought, oh, my God. And he just laid it out there, how it's going to roll over us and everything. And I just went out on the couch and lay down. I just lay down as I couldn't move. Oh, my God. You know, I couldn't go outside because the air felt it was poisonous. It was, it, it's just, and then... One day, I hooked up my little camera phone right into the computer, and I went on Facebook Live, and I just started playing. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just used a camera microphone and everything, and I, I had it upright rather than laying on its side. So, you know, you got that weird, like, like you're looking through a keyhole sort of thing. But I got all these people. It's got like 2,000 views or something. It was insane. And everybody liked it, and I loved it. It just kind of because it got me out of myself, man. And it felt real. So because I reconnected, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You get you get isolated. You need to re you need to reconnect. So I started doing that a lot of that, and I started going through old songs, like relearning old songs. I wasn't writing a lot of new stuff. I hadn't gotten to the point where I could actually do that yet. But I was going through old songs because I'm doing these live streams like two a week. Okay, I'm thinking, well, I can't do the same songs all the time. So I'm going through, and I've got all these old songs that, let's say the song has six verses. It's got three good ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. So I take the, so I just, I, I just started rewriting all these old songs. You know, and to begin with, that's hard to do because they're 40 years old. You're not the same person anymore. It's got a, it's got a life of its own. It's like a solid object. And it's almost like, who gives me the right to do that? And then you have to remind yourself, well, it's mine, first of all. You do, yeah. Yeah, I gave it. And what I need to do is I need to get into the headspace of what that song was about and then expand it a little bit. So 
I did a lot of that. And it's that's been a lot of fun. I've got basically an album's worth of material of old, old, old songs that, that basically I think are good songs now where it was i wouldn't be able to <laughs> sing them otherwise after all yeah. these years right yeah. right so so how do you manage that then do you is there a paywall is there you know have you a, is it facebook or is it youtube how do you can you can you sort of make a few quid can you make a living out of that well i can make a few yeah uh, it's, just, it's not like you know it's not I, i've been doing the paypal thing yeah. which is like a so it's basically like a tip gig. I don't want to do the money wall because that means that everybody can't see you. And I don't think that's right. I, especially in a time like this, I don't think I should be turning anybody down. People have lost their jobs, okay? They've lost their homes. The streets are filling up with people that are living under bridges and stuff. This is not a joke. So I'm not going to turn people down because they can't afford to get through a paywall. So I do my gig out there and I got my Venmo, which is one sort of, you know, way to pay people and then the PayPal. And there's there's others, of course. Usually I'll promo them like a week in advance or something, but sometimes it's just like a spur of the moment. Let's go out this afternoon and do something. And my wife, Katie, she, she she's like, I couldn't do it without her. Good. I mean, she's amazing. I couldn't do it without her. She's like, she thinks of everything that I don't think of. And she'll answer the comments when people comment on the video going along, you know, and she'll operate the, the phone camera or the other camera. She's got a movie camera that, you know, we're going to start using and stuff. And that's a whole new way of working. Um, I also, See, another thing, before this hit, I was going to be going into the studio. I have an ensemble of Orville, the guy I was talking about earlier, a bass player named Dune Butler fine young fellow he's almost as tall as his bass an upright bass you know um a drummer named joel litwin and a saxophone player jessica lowry she lives in new york you know and we were going to go do this that well the, the, jessica can't leave new york she can't get out um the studios are, you know everything kind of collapsed you can't start asking people for funding because you know that everything so that all all collapsed and we're going in me and the drummer and the bass player are going in in about three weeks into a local studio here just just down the road we were going to do it somewhere else in portland which was really really nice we had to scale back we had to rethink everything so we're doing it this way down the road i can walk there everybody lives in town you know and the three of us are going to play ensemble we're going to spend two days in there and play these songs ensemble and orville's going to put his parts on at hit in his house he has his own studio jessica has her own studio in in brooklyn where she can put on some parts and there's a couple of singers been talking to one of the other put some. so i'll have this new record by oh i don't know september or something like that so you does know, that excite what... you then jim it does yeah it does it really does because i really like the music I don't know, something snapped in my head about a year ago where I kind of figured, you know, what have I got to lose? What am I waiting for? Who do I think I am? What am I trying to prove? You know, I play the guitar. I come from a scene of such and such. I'm such and such an age. I come from, my parents did this. I'm who I am. I'm going to write songs and I'm going to sing them. And I just started writing whatever came, whatever pumped into my head, like a whimsical thing. So, okay, like I wrote a song about the pandemic and it's called Pandemic. And it's based on, I don't know if you've ever heard a English plague song called Betsy Bell and Mary Gray. It's 
phenomenal. It's amazing. There's a YouTube with Maddie Pryor and some fiddle player. I don't can't remember the guy's name. Oh my God. It's just it. She can sing notes that you didn't even know existed. And it's, it, it's a very, I was walking around in the early days of this. I was walking around. I didn't have a mask on and I'm like, I don't want to get close to anything because I don't, I don't I'm just walking. And I started that song popped into my head and I found it on my phone and I listened to it. And it's got this thing where it says, you know, Betson, it says Betsy Bell and Mary Gray, they were two bonnie lasses. They built them a bower in yon green side and thicked it all o'er with rushes. They thicked it all o'er with rushes and they thicked it all o'er with heather. The plague came down from Borough Town and slew them both together. Jesus, it just made that slew them both together. Oh my God. So I used the, I'm going to make up a word here now. I used the ominosity of that. Oh God. <laughs> you must be a songwriter. <laughs> I, used, I used the ominous. <laughs> I get you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> of that. <laughs> And also the meter and, you know, the length of the verses and stuff. And I started writing my own time, you know, my own historical time, my own geographical place, my own personhood and my own fears and everything into it. And also this was when I wrote that, it had been around for about three weeks, something like that. And everything had shut down for about three weeks. And just in that limited space of time, the water had gotten noticeably cleaner the air had gotten cleaner you could see the mountains clearer you go out at night and the stars were like you hadn't seen them since you were in your 20s you know it was astounding so i put that in there and you know all this stuff and it's this it's a six minute song and it's kind of orchestral in it in its way so you know i wrote that um and a bunch of stuff that I had before this hit that I was already working with people on and the arrangements were there and they were starting to sound really good. So we're going to go in and we're going to, you know, do the basic trio part ensemble and everybody knows everybody else. And Orville is like Mr. Easy, man. He's so smooth. He's so, I mean, he comes from a, one of the Midwestern church traditions, Pentecostal or something. I can't remember exactly what's singing in the church. So he can sing like that. You know, a great big fella, Orville, Orville Johnson. He grooves even when there's no music on. He just kind of, he's always in the zone. So he can just listen to the song and he can just get right in it and play it. Just get right in there. You know, it's astounding. So he'll put on his stuff, you know, and Jessica, who's like this high level world-class like jazz player, right? You know, she, she can find like a, a lick that you didn't know was there and put it in at the right place and do that part over there. And we all know each other and it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I'm excited so about look it. forward to that. Two things to ask yeah. you. Uh, you're no, hoping sure. that will be out in the next couple of months. If people want to catch up with you even in the next couple of months and your Facebook performances, I presume it's on mm -hmm. Facebook, how do people get there? What's your Have you a Facebook page that you use? I have a, I have a hold on. I'm going to do this without losing you. 
I have a Facebook fan page, as they call it. Now, hold a second. C Jim Page, C E A, like Seattle Jim okay. Page, C E A, C E A Jim Page. page. Yeah, C E A. Hold on. <laughs> it's S E A, not C E A. S E A, like C. Yeah, sorry. S E A. It's capital S E A, capital J I M, period, capital P A G E. Okay, we got okay. that. Yeah, you got so, to, yeah, yeah, I suppose you're heading for 71. I suppose I can expect a couple of little bits like this to happen. Oh, for God's sake, there's going to be more of them. And I also have a website. I have a, I have, a, I have an artist's website, which is uh, jimpage.net. Jimpage.net, it's quite simple. Yeah. Look, I was going yeah. to uh, ask you about politics and what's going on in the States and all that, but look, at it. it's been a pretty happy chat here, and I wonder, is there any point in going down that road? It's quite a difficult time for you in the States at the moment. Well, let's put it like this. I mean, that subject requires a little bit of talk. It does. Um, I won't belabor it because it, you know, it's, it, it's a huge, it, it's a huge, it is simultaneously horrifying and, and exhilarating. It is simultaneously scary and positive. It, we are on the cusp of a real change and it could go either one way or the other. The thing that's in the White House right now, the creature in the White House right now, didn't come out of nowhere. It's not an anomaly like, well, how did that happen? If you scratch your head and say, how'd that happen? It just means you're not paying attention. You haven't been paying attention. If you have been paying attention, you know how it happened, okay? This is a lot of unfinished business. This is a lot of playing dumb. This is a really big closet with a lot of stuff in it. And, you know, everybody has their closets. We have a really big one. You know, we're a young country, all that kind of stuff. Everybody knows, you know, so there he is. And this stuff happens, and this stuff has been happening for decades, for generations. You know, the police and the people and the police and the and the black people and the young people and the anti-war people, and it's always the police, and they send them out. It's always the police say, no, don't do that. And we say, but it has to be done. And they say, no, don't do that. That's been going on for generations. So everything comes together at exactly the perfect storm time. Okay? And ordinarily you would expect that it would be a blip on the radar screen to be a few you know days of rioting or something but this is still going on because so many normal ordinary people agree and i think i think that one of the reasons they agree is because due to the pandemic they have more time to think than they did before when you work five days a week how many hours and you have to both of you work to raise the kids because the economy, you know, demands it of you. You can't think. Not you don't have the time to. You get home, you don't want to, have to you just want to turn on the TV and watch sports or something. You don't have the time. That's shut down. There's no sports. Chances are you're not going to work. You have a lot of time to think. And when people saw George Floyd being killed by a cop with his knee on his neck, with his knee on his neck for nine minutes. People just said, no, that's enough. No, that's enough. And it's not just, it's, no, that's enough. That happened. No, that's enough. This has been happening for decades, for generations. This has been happening. And we are better than that. And we're saying no. So they took to the streets and they started to say no. Well, the, one th the wonderful thing about a word like no is it implies a yes. So when they say no to that, they're saying yes to something else simultaneously. And that has to be understood. 
So we as a people are saying yes, in public, in large numbers. And there is a, there is a big force connected to the guy in the White House, which had to happen because unfinished business, you know, a big force connected to that guy in the White House who's saying, you cannot say yes like that. And you cannot say yes to those things that you want. Health care, education, fix the street lights, stop beating us up. You know what I mean? All this kind of real stuff, real stuff. You cannot say yes to those because we're not going to give them to you. Well, those days are numbered. Those days are numbered. You know, I mean, America, this is where I live. This is where I come from. This is where I was raised, what I grew up in. You know, and it can be scary, but it's, but there's a beauty on the other side of the fear. There's a real beauty. And that's what I think we have to keep in mind. I think the uh, the words there, there's a beauty on the other side of the fear is quite a nice place to leave it, uh, Jim Page. And I suppose in the words of uh, Utah <laughs> Phillips, he said about you, if you're ever going to get the message, this is the messenger to get it from. Jim Page, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. It always is entertaining chatting to you. And it's always <laughs> informative. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Kieran, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We look forward to when we're all together again in music at next year's Tradfest, provisionally set for the 27th through the 31st of January 2021. And while we're all waiting for the day when it's safe to travel again, you can fill your heart with Ireland by going to ireland.com. Ireland.com.